Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Maps tell stories. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Bellinger and Ben Gamel of the Connecticut Historical Society uncover the little-known story of 18th-century cartographer Bernard Romans. A new exhibit of his maps at the museum pieces together the life story of a bold, talented, and adventurous immigrant to Connecticut who put his considerable skills to work for the American cause and may have paid the ultimate price for it. In 1846, an 86-year-old woman living in New York submitted an application for a military widow's pension. Her name was Elizabeth Whiting Romans. Her husband, Bernard Romans, had served the American Army as an engineer, and Elizabeth provided a detailed account of his service. But it's the story of the end of Bernard's life that captures your attention. Elizabeth stated that Bernard had been captured by the British at sea while traveling to South Carolina and taken as a prisoner of war to Jamaica. The British refused a prisoner exchange because of Bernard's, quote, ability to do so much injury to the British interests. At war's end, Bernard was put on a ship on a, quote, pretext, of sending him back to the States, but he died on the passage, and, quote, his friends had good reason to believe him to have been willfully murdered. Who is this mysterious man, Bernard Romans? Why was he so feared by the Brits that they would resort to murdering him even after the war was over? Is this story even true? To help us sort through this, let's turn to my colleague Ben Gamel, exhibit developer at CHS. Ben is the curator of a new CHS exhibition, War, Maps, Mystery, Dutch mapmaker Bernard Romans and the American Revolution. Hello, Ben. Hello, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So uh, we'll get to the murder part in a minute because that's really interesting. But where did the idea for this exhibit come from? A couple places. First of all, the CHS has an incredible uh, collection of maps, Revolutionary War era maps and other maps. Uh, We happen to have a few of Bernard Romans' maps and these maps are pretty rare. Uh, the second thing is that his he has a couple of direct descendants who actually live in the local area, Priscilla Romans Hexter and Madeline Romans Hexter. And uh, Priscilla had done has done quite a bit of research on the life of Bernard Romans, and she's done research here at the Connecticut Historical Society. Um, so she had come to us with this story of Bernard Romans. I was not familiar with him at all. Turns out he has a really amazing story. And um, so she had brought her own original research to his story um, of significance. She had actually uncovered um, the true birth date of Bernard Romans. A lot of writers and historians have assumed, have believed he was born in 1720. Um, She discovered he was actually born in 1741 and had his, the record changed at the Library of Congress. So... That sort of changed uh, changes the story a little bit, um, as we can talk about more, that he was actually about 20 years younger than historians have believed in the past. But in any case, we had these maps of his. Priscilla Romans Hexter also has some interesting maps of his in her personal collection as well. These things sort of came together, and we thought this would be a fascinating story about a Connecticut uh, Revolutionary War era person that not many people know too much about. So he lived in Connecticut, but he was not born here. 
So tell us a little bit about his background. Right. He's, I mean, people refer to him as a foreigner. Uh, he was born in uh, Delft in the Netherlands in 1741. And we don't know much about his early life, but um, he was educated in the Netherlands. And then probably as a young boy or a young teenager, he went to England for schooling as well. And then he came to America in 1757 at the age of 16. So he later in life, um, he settled in Connecticut, but he was not originally from Connecticut. Okay. He was part of a pretty widespread tradition of Dutch map making, right? It's kind of not surprising that this is a craft that he goes into. Yeah, I'm not sure about his, his in his family if, if there were map makers, but um, yeah, Connecticut itself has a tradition of Dutch map makers. Um, I mean, early exploration in the Americas um, has a tradition of Dutch map makers. So we actually, in our collection here at the CHS, we have a few really fascinating maps from the 17th century by Dutch explorers, um, including, I mean, the most famous probably Connecticut Dutch explorer was Adrian Block, who sailed up the Connecticut River in the mid 1600s. So yeah, he he comes from a long sort of line of Dutch explorers, and uh, that was what he went into when he was studying in the Netherlands and um, in England. So before we'll we'll talk about his Revolutionary War service in a moment, but. Before the revolution started, Bernard Romans was working for the British, correct? Yeah, so that's what makes, part of what makes his story fascinating is that he he will go on to serve in the American Revolution, fighting for the Americans, but he starts out uh, working for the British. So he comes to America, he comes to Boston in 1757. Mm-hmm. He's 16 years old, he's a junior surveyor, and he's working for various colonial administrations. At the beginning, he's sort of exploring the colonies up and down the Hudson River and then further south. So this, and this is during the French and Indian War. So the British are, you know, seeking information about the geography of the colonies. And so this is part of what Romans is doing. So he's, he's in the north, but he's also in the south. Much of his time is actually spent in the southern colonies. And when the war ends um, in 1763, the French and Indian War, he really starts exploring Florida, the colonies of Florida and Georgia, and starts working on a book and maps about the colonies of, of Florida. There's East and West Florida, two colonies at the time. So what's the purpose of the book? So the book starts out, he's, so Romans is, he has many interests. He's an engineer, he's a surveyor, a cartographer, he's a naturalist, he's really into botany. So he's exploring Florida, learning about the plants and specimens in the area, but then also studying um, Native American tribes. Um, He's studying primarily the Choctaw and Chickasaw tribes, and this is to gather information. I mean, he's hired by colonial administrators to do this. Um, But then as he continues to explore Florida, um, the other sort of aspect of this and the book sort of evolves as he's writing it into this kind of explanation for New Englanders who are interested in Florida. So at the end of the French and Indian War, Great Britain acquires these two, this territory that they divide into two colonies. And it's, it's new land open for new speculation, new settlers. So New Englanders are interested in this new land that's opening up. So he 
this book starts to turn into kind of a guidebook for New Englanders interested in settling Florida. What kinds of advice and tips would your New England, your prospective New England migrant to Florida get from Bernard Roman's work? What are they learning? When I was looking through the book, it's really fascinating because he's very specific on what you need to bring with you. Okay. And he actually, he divides it up into, you know, your different audiences. So if you're someone of wealth, Mm -hmm. here are the supplies you should bring. Here is how much money it's going to cost you. Here are many slaves you should bring hmm. with you. One fascinating piece of the book is he talks about bring, purchase slaves in New England, hmm. bring them down south, and then you can resell them at a profit and make up your costs. So he's actually looking at them not as potential laborers, but a sort of way of carrying your wealth with you. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Let me read you one quote from his book. This is advice for a wealthy man considering moving to Florida. Uh, Quote, let one man be possessed of $2,500 in money, and we will suppose him living in Rhode Island or in any other part of New England or New York, New Jersey or Pennsylvania, and allow him to have a wife and four children with two house slaves. He may purchase eight good working slaves for $1,200 out of his $2,500. About $400 more will buy four young girls or boys, for which he will, in Florida, find ready sale with 80% advance, but they ought not to be under 12 or 13 years old. So he takes this advice. He uh, customizes it for a poorer man. So mm-hmm. if you are if you only have about $400, um, you know, you probably have one house slave that you can bring with you. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's kind of shocking to, to read, um, but it's... You know, it's really a window into the time period and, you know, the economy and slave ownership, both in New England and in the South. Uh, Romans, actually, he owned at least three slaves that he brought with him down South. Okay. And then later on, when he was serving in the Revolution, he had at least one slave that I know of. So it's pretty, it's it's kind of an interesting window into how casual New Englanders could be about enslavement and how, again, if you are sort of working against this persistent sort of misunderstanding that slavery was not an issue. It was not a thing in uh, the North before um, the Civil War. This is just some some more evidence that this is absolutely not true to the extent that people are being encouraged to look at enslaved people as like a portable, a way to keep keep your cash portable, in other words. Right. It's an investment and it's fully integrated into the economy. So it's not an unusual piece in the um, in the book. It's just mm-hmm. sort of part of his. Yeah. He literally has. He'll have lists of here are the supplies to bring and mm-hmm. how much it's going to cost you. And slaves are just one of right. many. You know, it's a slave is included on the list along with corn and mm-hmm. and you know household goods. Right. It's also an interesting. I think something else that's interesting about it is it, it's very easy to kind of assume that European colonists were. Um, that the land was this opportunity for poor European colonists to make a good living and to kind of turn their situation around. But the fact is, you needed quite a bit of capital to successfully carve a farm or a business out of, you know, land that, at least to your eyes, was wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, if you're going to do this, you better have all of this stuff that you can bring with you. Right. It's uh, It's a very practical guide. I mean, mm-hmm. I can see how... Anyone interested in moving south would want to pick a copy of this up. 
Hmm. So this is what Bernard Romans is up to before the Revolutionary War. And then you have uh, the end of the French and Indian War and the colonies start to get in an uproar over taxes and representation and all that stuff. So what happens to him as this as someone who's making a living off the British and colonial governments? What happens to Bernard? So he does, he eventually, um, if you could call it, he switches sides, but it's not... It's not a really a sudden thing that happens. You know, even while he's exploring Florida, you know, surveying the South, he's he's also going north. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually, he served briefly uh, with the British military along the Hudson River in Albany, uh, which is where he met his first wife. So his wife came from a, a long-standing Dutch family um, who they had, you could call it, patriotic tendencies as the war as the American Revolutionary War came closer. So, you know, his wife and her family might have been part of his kind of transformation mm-hmm. towards uh, supporting the war. Uh, but the other aspect is he's also, he's involved in the printing business. You know, he's he's trying to get his maps printed. He's trying to get this Florida book printed. Um, he's trying to make a living off of this stuff. And so he's starting to meet all of these folks in the printing business. So people like Paul Revere, James Rivington, who was... People thought he was a loyalist, but he was actually a spy for the Americans during the war. There are New Haven or Connecticut uh, printers like Amos Doolittle and Abel Buell of New Haven. These are all folks who are going to eventually join the Patriots uh, during the Revolutionary War. He also probably met George Washington while he was along the Hudson River. Uh, This was during the French and Indian War, Mm -hmm. so Washington was serving with the British. Mm -hmm. So Romans probably met him during this time. So he's... He has all of these associates and friends that perhaps are influencing him as time goes on. He's a brilliant guy. I mean, he's really smart. At one point, he is elected into the membership of the American Philosophical Society, which was founded by Benjamin Franklin. Okay. And so he he presents his work on Florida to this group, and they're so impressed that they elect him as a member. A lot of these guys are also supporting the cause for independence. So he's got all these guys he's meeting that um, are probably influencing him in some way. I feel like he's, if you think about, um, say, a movie or a TV show about the American Revolution, that say, uh, I'm thinking of HBO's miniseries about John Adams, there's always these actors in the background who they're at everything, they're in all of the key scenes, but you never really find out their names, but mm-hmm. they're there. And, you know, you think Romans is almost one of those guys who's, he's uh, with all of these well-known guys, he's just like one that doesn't ever get his name in the credits. Yeah, actually... It's kind of cheesy, but I, th- I've been sort of thinking about him as the Where's Waldo right. of the American Revolution. Right. He's, he's popping up everywhere. I mean, there's an advertisement for his book that says that he was an eyewitness at the tea, the Boston Tea Party, the Battle of Bunker Hill. I mean, this guy, <laughs> I think he was everywhere. Or nowhere, or just nowhere. making it up, right? right? It could be, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because once the war breaks out, his maps are actually being used by both sides in the war. Right. So he. Um, a lot of his work before the war was in the South, as I had talked about. And so he produced one map of the southern British colonies. That map becomes part of this thing called the um, American Military Pocket Atlas, uh, which is printed in London, and it's used by British officers. So they're using his map of the southern colonies. At the same time, he's making maps of the area around Philadelphia, Massachusetts, Connecticut, 
So all of these maps are being used by Americans as well. So his maps are being used by both the British and the Americans during the Revolutionary War. I think, too, when you, you talk about these maps, and if uh, folks haven't seen any of the maps from this era, you might you could be forgiven for just thinking of a sort of sterile kind of Google map type of map. But there are real touches of art in many of these maps. For example, many of them have decorative, um, what are, they're called, cartouches mm-hmm. um, in the corner. Um, and how and those are actually part of the message that the map is giving you. So can you talk a right. little bit about some of those? He's using symbolism to, symbolism and outright words like the word state. During the war, he's labeling the state of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. the state of New Jersey. We don't think anything of that now, right. but he's making a statement. To the, the British, that's the treason. Like, These are the yeah. states. These yeah. are not colonies. Right. He has a, there's a cartouche, you could call it a cartouche, that he puts into his Florida book. It's an allegorical image of Lady Liberty. It has all of these symbols that you might see in other cartouches or, um, you know, other other s- symbology. So he's got Lady Liberty. La- Lady Liberty is holding a shield as usually in, you know, cartouches or symbolism, you might see it's a Roman symbol that says SPQR. It stands for the Senate and the people of Rome. So he actually instead changes it to SPQA for the Senate and people of America. He's got all these little subtle symbols um, that he's using throughout his illustrations. Right. Interesting. Um, doesn't he put, he uh, one of the maps that I really like in the exhibit, it's a map of Massachusetts. And it's actually titled Map of the Seat of Civil War in America. Right. Which is partly <clears throat> interesting because we tend to, we don't tend to think of the Revolutionary War today as a civil war. We had mm-hmm. the civil war. Right. But it was a civil war. But he puts a drawing of John Hancock's house, right? right. At the bottom of that map, like a close-up. Because Hancock's house was at one point occupied by the British. Right. And, yeah. And he, yeah. he actually dedicates the map to John Hancock. Right. And he also labels on that drawing of his house, he says, the enemy. He writes the enemies occupying this house. So he's okay. flat out declaring the British as the enemy. So it's not, he's not a neutral map maker. Not at all. Well, also <clears throat> doing kind of a nice job of sort of, you could say paying homage, or you could say kissing up to a very powerful, influential man in right. this new country too, right? Right, which um, you know make, makes sense. Uh, he was a very ambitious guy, and so he's he's sort of connecting with a lot of well-known figures. So yeah, he you know part of when we think about why he decided to join the Americans, you know, patriotism and ideals of freedom. Sure, that was part of it, but he probably was also opportunistic a little mm-hmm. bit. I mean, it seems that he was probably a little difficult to work with over his lifetime. Okay. And so he had a lot of sort of falling out with his British employers. So by the time he comes to New York in 1773, after, you know, exploring the South, he's kind of burned bridges with a lot of these British employers, um, whether some sort of rivalry between map makers or he's just difficult to get along with. Um, he's, he's upset he's not getting paid enough. A lot of these things come into play. So he comes to New York and he's probably looking for work as well. What about his Revolutionary War service? Because he not only is did he make these maps that are then used by both sides, he actually actively participates as a soldier. Right. That's what we started this off with, with, was the story of his service as told by his widow. What did he actually do in the war? Anything heroic? I don't know if I would say heroic, but he did. Uh, he was involved, and he um, he was in a very enthusiastic participant. So okay. let's put it that way. 
So one of the first things he did was, well, first he settles in Weathersfield shortly after moving up north. Weathersfield is a place with a lot of uh, revolutionaries. So one of the first things he does is he comes up with this idea to raid, raid, to put an expedition, to launch an expedition against Fort Ticonderoga. So he gathers under the Committee of Safety in Connecticut, they gather a, a group to um, attack Fort Ticonderoga. So he, he's not the leader, but he's one of the leaders on that expedition. Kind of a funny story. I mean, it's a successful expedition. Fort Ticonderoga is um, captured by the Americans. But, you know, halfway up towards the fort, he suddenly disappears and he's not there. So while they're traveling up, Benedict Arnold joins the group. Nathaniel Green joins the group. And so he's got a lot of well-known, Amer- well-known American uh, figures joining this group. So halfway up on the, during their travel, he disappears. I'm not sure why, other than we do have a record from Captain Edward Mott, who's also from Connecticut. He keeps a journal of this, of this raid. And he writes in his journal, kind of mysteriously, he says, Mr. Romans left us and joined no more. We were all glad as he had been a trouble to us all the time he was with us. So, Glowing praise. Yeah, I mean, who, who knows what happened there? But the funny thing is, so Romans actually, so there's, there's actually two forts on the Hudson near Ticonderoga. There's Ticonderoga and then there's Fort George, which is essentially an abandoned fort. And he decides to attack, attack and take this fort over by himself. So he literally takes over this fort, which had no one in it except for one older guy who was sort of the caretaker and was described as an invalid (laughs) um, who gladly gave the fort over to Romans. So Romans actually, he captured the fort all by himself, maybe because no one wanted to go with him. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, that's not nothing. No, it's... uh, (laughs) I guess it's impressive. He he actually sent sent his captive... Um, I think he sent him off with, you know, a pass that, that he was, you know, he should be treated well. And, but he, he apparently, he ingratiated himself with Benedict Arnold. They sort of got along pretty well. So after Fort Ticonderoga is taken over and Fort George is taken over, um, Benedict Arnold and Romans, they worked together to do an inventory of the supplies and the armaments in the fort. And these are, so the cannons in the fort are, are what is eventually sent down to Boston to break the blockade of the British. So it's like, it's kind of a significant event. Mm-hmm. So he's part of that working with Benedict Arnold, who, I mean, we've talked about sort of people don't really like Romans a little bit, but Arnold loved him. I mean, he said, a quote from a letter um, Benedict Arnold writes, he says, I think Romans a very spirited, judicious gentleman who has the service of his country much at heart and hope you will meet proper encouragement. Benedict Arnold, for much of the war, would be a guy you'd really want to have a ringing endorsement from, and then at a certain point, that ringing endorsement probably becomes a bit embarrassing. Yeah, it could be. I mean, <laughs> I wish we knew more of Romans's personal thoughts. He didn't really leave a diary or a journal, so who knows what he thought of Arnold. I mean, a lot of what we hear from him is defending himself against various accusations by people who may have something against him who knows you know what their problem is but he's defending himself a lot against folks so you said that romans frequently had to defend himself what kinds of charges were being brought against him 
So I'll give you two examples. One example is he was a captain in a Pennsylvania regiment, and they went off on a expedition against Canada. So on their trip north, all these residents in New York are starting to complain. They're getting harassed by his men. Um, they get into fights. So he ends up getting uh, brought to trial twice, actually, for accusations against him and his company. He defends himself. He says, basically, I tried to keep the peace. One of the big things was that he wouldn't let his men purchase liquor from the townspeople and that they were all upset about that and there were altercations. The men or the townspeople were upset uh, about that? I think both, okay. actually. Mostly the townspeople. Okay. Um, so he, you know, he's saying, this is what I tried to do. I tried to you know, keep my guys sober. I tried to keep the peace. So anyway, his, all the accusations were dropped. Um, he was never convicted of anything. So who knows? I mean, he could have been completely innocent or he could have been, he could have had, you know, leadership uh, troubles. It's hard to say. So another thing was that he was, he was also accused by someone of essentially plagiarism in, in making his maps of Florida. He was, he defended himself. He took out a newspaper ad. He called the guy, the, accu the accuser, a scoundrel, um, it appears that the accuser didn't have any evidence, so it sort of died down. Uh, so again, these things, he defended himself, and sort of th these things went away. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing with the maps is, surely he did use some work by other map makers. I mean, there are a lot of cartographers and surveyors and explorers, and they're, they're using each other's work. There might have been instances where someone didn't feel they got enough credit, um, that was happening all the time, I think. It's not like, I mean, Romans did an incredible amount of exploration and surveying, but he didn't do every single thing, you know, that you might see in one of his maps. And we have an example of a map that was probably made, not a map, not made by Romans, but a map that was probably made using information and surveying work from other map makers. That's actually quite a well-known map. Could right. you tell us a little bit about the Abel Buell map? Right. So Abel Buell was a... Uh, an engraver from New Haven. Um, we have a map in the CHS collection of his. It's an incredibly rare map called A New and Correct Map of the United States of North America, published in 1784. So it was the first map, um, it was the first map printed by a U.S. citizen in the United States. So this is, it was a big deal when it, when it was published. So Abel Buell, he was an associate with Bernard Romans. They know each other probably worked together. They most likely worked together. Um, Abel Buell may have helped Romans as he was working in the South for a time, surveying Florida. So they knew each other. Um, so Buell's map is, you know, it's it's a fascinating map. It's in the CHS collection. It's it's really fun to look at because, you know, Connecticut has territory in, the, in Ohio. It just, you know, a lot of the eastern states just continue farther west um, than you would you would think. So Buell, Buell prints this map, but he didn't do all that work. I mean, he clearly took from the work of other people, including Romans. Mm -hmm. And Buell, Buell, however, tried to make sure that his work would not be stolen because he then copyrighted that map. Right. So Buell is the, he's the first to, he's actually the first person in the United States to copyright a map. So he copyrights his work he takes advantage of a new copyright law in Connecticut. So, 
you know, he was, you know, it was smart of him, I guess. Um, map makers before him hadn't done that. So, you know, no one ever accused him of plagiarizing, but he clearly, you know, used the work of other folks. It's kind of ironic that Abel Buell copyrighted a map to make sure no one would steal his work because his earlier career was partly as a counterfeiter. He'd actually been arrested for it and had his ear cropped, but managed to save and have the piece of ear that was cut off reattached. The story is that he took the piece of ear and put it under his tongue to keep it fresh so that it could then be somehow reattached to his ear, which sounds incredibly painful (laughs) when you're talking about 18th century medicine. Yeah, he was a character. Um, He got into a lot of trouble. I mean, he also, he he was branded on his forehead at the same time. That was another part of his punishment. And I think he would wear his, the branding was high enough that he could sort of wear his hair to cover it. And so you could sort of get by without that stigma of being a counterfeiter. You kind of imagine these two guys might have been fun to hang out with at a tavern and just kind of hear what kind of stories they had to tell. I, yeah, I think, I mean, they they both probably had big egos mm-hmm. and were really smart and knew it. And they had huge amounts of confidence. I mean, mm-hmm. they Bernard Romans was super confident and ambitious. He had lots of big ideas. Um, some of them worked out, some of them didn't. So... He would, have been, he would have been interesting to, to talk with. So to get to the end of his story, he doesn't um, get a chance to work out some of those big ideas because his story ends sort of mysteriously and tragically. He's, his first wife dies. He's remarried to a young, much younger woman who lives in Wethersfield. They're only married for about a year. And as she says many years later in her pension application, he leaves for South Carolina, presumably on business for the United States military, and is captured by the British. Is her story of him being murdered by the British credible? Uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's the story. He he essentially resigned from his commission during the war to go back to Wethersfield and, and settle and maybe you know work on his book. He had another book he published um, about the history of the Netherlands, um, which was actually meant to be an inspiration to the Americans fighting the war. So anyway, he's in Wethersfield. He gets called back um, to serve and to serve in the Southern Campaign. So he gets on a ship, probably sails out of New London, heading south. There's a there's a big, pretty big naval battle off of. Charleston, South Carolina, lots of American ships are captured by the British. He is captured. He is sent to Jamaica as a prisoner of war. So he's in Jamaica for a few years until the end of the war. Uh, So the war ends in 1783. And then according, so there's not much we know after that. The the um, The only thing we know mostly is from his wife's petition. Although there is another British source that says that tells us a different story. Mm-hmm. So she claims that he was, you know, supposedly the British were going to bring send the prisoners back, um, and he was on his way back to Connecticut, and then he was murdered. And there, there seems to be some reason for, there seems to be a motivation for that. I mean, if he really was this, first of all, this traitor, mm-hmm. second of all, a traitor who had a lot of knowledge um, about the geography of 
America. He had um, he had done all this surveying and exploration um, and working for the British. He had information about the British. So who knows? Maybe they just didn't like him. They wanted to, you know, throw him over the side. But there's a British source also that they, that claims that he was actually sent to England um, and where he lived for several years and in relative freedom. And then at some point he got on a ship to come back to Connecticut and was murdered by who knows on the ship because he had a lot of money on him. Maybe he had made success selling his maps. I don't know. So both versions have him being murdered. Mm -hmm. um, but the British, the second version is the British sort of saying it's not our fault. And then his wife is saying, yeah, the British murdered him. And you can, yeah, you can totally see why either side would have the story that they do, right? Now, sadly, Elizabeth Romans never got the pension granted to her, which right. is kind of surprising considering he did legitimately have military service. Um, although I don't know, I don't know enough about the ways that those pensions were distributed to know if there was some kind of disqualifying um, circumstance. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure either. That's another mystery is, you know, clearly he served with the Continental Army, mm -hmm. um, but her petition for a pension was rejected. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one, I mean, there's some explanations. One could be that he, he retired right before he married her. So, you know, he, he comes back to Wethersfield and then they get married and that's that. But then he gets called up again. So who knows why they decided not to give her a pension. It would have been really nice for us if he had kept a diary or something along those lines. It would be great. I've read that he did, but I don't. no one knows you know, whether it exists or not. That would be really cool. That would be really cool. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Ben, for all of this. And um, thank you for listening to Grading the Nutmeg. I'm Natalie Blanger. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Natalie Bellinger and Ben Gamble. War Maps Mystery, Dutch mapmaker Bernard Romans and the American Revolution is on view at the Connecticut Historical Society until May 2nd. To learn more, visit chs.org. For more great stories on maps, order Connecticut Explored's back issue for spring 2012, entitled Putting Connecticut on the Map, at the website at ctexplored.org. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. To help you celebrate the holidays, we're releasing a special episode of Christmas Stories and Music on Saturday, December 21st. So next weekend, get the cocoa and cookies, settle down by the tree, and just say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us for the special Christmas episode of Grading the Nutmeg. <laughs> <laughs>